Hi, Jenema. Hello. Thank you for joining us via Zoom for a special edition of It Simply Isn't Done with the Preacher. The Preacher. Yeah, a preponderance of preachers today. Well, only one that preached yesterday. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> it's true. I mean, the two of you were there, so like that counts. Yeah. Like, yeah. Kind of like, you know, office furniture counts. Yeah, we were there. <laughs> Look, there's good office furniture and there's terrible office furniture. I'm sorry. Don't say what we are. <laughs> The scripture today is from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all his attendants, so he declared, everyone, leave now. So no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? Is my his brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me, and they moved closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go back to your father. Tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You may live in the land of Goshen, so you will be near me, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everyone with you. I will support you there, so you, your household, and everyone with you won't starve, since the famine will still last five years. You and my brother Benjamin have seen with your own eyes that I'm speaking to you. Tell my father about my power in Egypt and about everything you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin's neck, neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. After that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Morning, family. It is good to gather with the family of Christ that even if I haven't met you yet, we are together in this body. And we are together across distances and across time and across all of the strange little pieces that are family. Hi, I'm Jenaba. <laughs> when it is good when we gather together, it is so good. There's even cake sometimes. <laughs> But families are, as we've been talking about, complicated. 
Last weekend, Ann Arbor had its pride celebration on Main Street downtown. Ann Arbor First is where I serve. The church that I serve had a booth there, as did a handful of other churches tucked among the regulars, like the YMCA and one of the local bars, and the surprises, like State Farm Insurance. <laughs> Happy Pride, you're in good hands. I was there for the first shift, the first four hours of the nine-hour event. And as an introvert who dislikes summer, of course I was delighted to be in an impromptu social situation on a sunny August day. Because I was there representing the church, and because as a queer clergy person I'm aware that sometimes I'm more symbol than human, I wore one of my clerical collar shirts. There are few things that announce clergy quite so clearly as a clerical collar, not least because Catholic priests have rather cornered the market there. But I wanted that nonverbal announcement. Pride is a place to be your full self, and my full self now includes ordained clergy status. To some, however, that meant that I arrived in the uniform of the enemy and they wanted nothing to do with that. We pick up the story of Joseph today in a lectionary reading that has skipped Joseph's unloving decisions. Last week in the apparent sermon series that never ends. <laughs> Always watch the week before, you get the good bits. Barry talked about young Joseph, the arrogant teenager who preened in his father Jacob's favoritism as he got to dodge shepherding and instead be a snitch against his brothers. Jacob built a family system that could not help but fail, as had his father Isaac and his father's father Abraham before him. Last week, Joseph was the one with less power, losing to his older brothers who'd had enough and threw him in a well before changing course to sell him off, out of sight, out of mind, out of their lives. It broke Jacob's heart, and the wedge within the family went deeper. This week, we skipped Joseph's reveal full of loud, messy tears and full-body hugs and terror, because what we've skipped is that there's a famine just as Joseph predicted in his many adventures between being sold and here rising to a position in the inner cabinet of Pharaoh, Joseph is now the one in power, his brothers humbled at his feet asking for the most basic of necessities, food. And Joseph messes with them. The verses of reconciliation read today are lovely, but like all reconciliation, they must be read in the light of the harm done before. Rather than give his famine-stretched family the food they request, Joseph imprisons some of them, has them accused of theft, demands that the youngest brother be brought, and holds the necessary food as ransom hiding behind the Egyptian garb of his office to ensure that no one recognizes him. It is his turn now to be powerful where they are powerless. And I, as a youngest sibling, can imagine that revenge is sweet indeed. 
Professor Cameron B.R. Howard writes that it would be difficult to overstate Joseph's position of imperial power in this story. Anyone who wants to eat must come to Joseph. He hoards the grain and decides who may purchase it and at what price, at a time when all the world is riddled with famine. Once powerless at the bottom of a pit, outnumbered by brothers who hated him, Joseph now gets to decide who will live and who will die. Having that power does not necessarily make Joseph a bad guy, but his use of that power to control those around him surely does, no matter how much he cries. And cry he does. Loudly enough that all of Pharaoh's household hears his grief and perhaps his own lingering fear. Time has changed everyone in this family. But this time, the brothers do not sacrifice the youngest for their own gain. This time, they protect Benjamin as they never did Joseph. And maybe it is this that breaks Joseph's plan that prompts him to send everyone else away and announce himself asking after Jacob's well-being. Yet when he does so, he is still in the uniform of his Egyptian power. He hasn't given the food to the brothers yet, hasn't said anything at all about forgiveness, hasn't apologized for abusing the long reach of his office. I'm Joseph, he cries. Is my father really still alive? and his brothers were terrified. I don't wear my clerical collar very often. For one thing, the tab is made of plastic and not particularly comfortable. It's somewhat like a two-inch veterinary cone that limits my downward movement. <laughs> Mostly, though, I don't want to announce my profession in quite that loud a voice. There are so many people who have been hurt by organized religion. And it is sometimes a straight ticket to being brushed off when I say verbally or not, I'm a pastor. You may have experienced the same that as soon as some reference to your church attendance comes out, suddenly it is so interesting to talk about the thunderstorms last week. We may not have been as, direct, as directly in charge of causing the harm as Joseph was, but that doesn't mean we aren't part of it. We too wear the Egyptian coal around our eyes, holding the grain in our power. We too carry the might of an empire in the crosses that we sometimes wear around our necks. At Pride, people were wary of me at first, waving from a safe distance. But about an hour in, there was a street preacher who wandered through with a megaphone announcing the need for the repentance of sinners, garbling the so-called clobber verses that are used to leave queer folk bloody as Christ and nail them to the cross as though it will heal us in some way. And so I went into the crowd, in my collar, and handed out cards that had a blessing written on them. This is a blessing to remind you, it said with strength and gentleness, that your body is a temple, whole and beautiful, worthy and unique. It is entirely yours as you dance, sing, weep, rage, and live in its honest holiness. There is no one's permission you need for this, for God has never left your temple and is with you, affirming you each day as beloved and wonderful and enough.
God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household and ruler of the land of Egypt. Joseph's ability to dismiss his brother's cruelty as too little to stop God, his ability to remind them again and again that he is the powerful one here, that he has risen far beyond them, tastes bittersweet on the tongue. The balance of debts between the sons of Jacob is forever unbalanced. They have all hurt each other immeasurably because they are a mess. But God works with messes all the time and makes them beautiful. Pastor Jeff McElroy writes that there is no direct revelation of the covenant in the Joseph cycle, at least not to Joseph. Nowhere does God appear to Joseph and definitively declare that he was the person through whom the promise would continue. God instead has been working behind the scenes and on the down low, working through and among human plans and manipulations. In one of the most reassuring promises in history, God does not wait for this Abrahamic family to get their act together before being part of the narrative. Bending what was awful, selfishness, slavery, prison, famine, and fear into the good of safety, of enough, of hope. The difference between God redeeming suffering and God causing it is a different sermon for a different day. But today, we as the readers and Joseph as the actor point out that nothing has pushed God and God's care for God's people out of the picture. God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and God is keeping it even if every last one of the 12 sons gets in the way. You may live in the land of Goshen, so you will be near me, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everyone with you. I will support you there so you, your household, and everyone with you won't starve since the famine will still last five years. Joseph is a jerk the entirety of this story. And still he can see enough to say God calls us to something different. Come, be safe here, be fed here. But it is not until he embraces his brothers that they truly feel safe. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. After that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. I cannot erase the harm that the church has done and is doing to so many groups of people, queer folk included. I can try not to participate in it, and I fail sometimes at that too. Systems are hard, and learned prejudice is harder. But I can walk up to someone on a sunny Saturday in August and remind them God loves you. I can do that on a rainy Tuesday in December, too. <laughs> All of the days God loves you, just in case you thought it was a time-sensitive thing. It is when Joseph stops being an Egyptian official and starts being a person who loves and hates and cries and hugs, and hopes, and fears, that is when his brothers realize this is good, this is holy even. 
When I walked around pride in my collar, I was only a uniform. But when people came up to me and told me their stories, when people said the church had been horrible, and I said yes, instead of trying to say, well, what but we did, we have silos of grain for you, that was when change happened. God was present in the places where we were human together, sweating in the sunlight. People talked about how important it was to see churches in our booths there. They commented about what a beautiful shock it was to see someone who looks like me in a clerical collar. They complimented my pronoun pin and were floored that a non-binary person could be not only in a church, but in the pulpit. They will not starve. For thankfully, the bread of life isn't only owned by those of us who have steeple-topped grain silos. Like Joseph, it is so easy for me to tell this tale in a way that makes me look impressive, because this is one of the good stories. But like Joseph, we are all called to be the messy horror of human with each other, rumpling our beautiful silks and getting coffee on our sanctuary floors and even crying where people can see you in order to recognize that God is patiently walking alongside, waiting for us to realize that vengeance and power and glory and judgment are not ours. They are God's each and every time, and ours is prayer and hope and love and faith and wonder and contrition and runny noses and forgiveness. Apologies, it is indeed pollen season. <laughs> and strength and maybe sometimes humility. So where in your life are you hiding behind your office, beloved? Where are you faced with those who fear not who you are, but who they see? And how can you learn to listen to those who need you to hear that the uniform you wear, whether real clothing or not, is so much louder than the words you speak? That no matter how raucously you claim you are a brother or a sister or a sibling, they only see the power of Egypt ready to press them down. Recognizing that kind of privilege in ourselves is incredibly difficult, even and especially if it is unintentional. But we must. We who know that God is at work leveling mountains and raising valleys, we who know God sends us into a hurting world to help the healing, must recognize when we are part of the hurt and step back, listen, perhaps even hug. Ask first about the hug, consent is kindness. <laughs> May God's work in turning your sorrow into joy be made obvious. May God's work through you be made merciful. And may we all be given spirits of courage to step back enough to listen and love and become as human as the messy family we are. Amen. Well, 
Um, so what we often do is reflect on the specifics of the message, but because we have a guest preacher, um, I'd love to start with what is, what is your sermon writing process look like? Do you have a consistent pattern? What, you know, how do you engage the text? What is your homiletical, you know, vibe? Uh, it is um, something that my homiletics professor would be horrified by is what it is. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I do so much writing in my head just in general. Um, like that's, I'm sort of constantly writing about the world as I encounter it. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's just a processing thing or if that's, like because I'm a poet or because I don't know what what prompts that but I'm sort of always writing some kind of narrative in the back of my head so a lot of the homiletic work that I do is actually very internal um and so I feel badly when people are like oh how long does it take you to write a sermon and I can say something like oh, about an hour and 15 minutes and that sounds ridiculous but that's just because that's the time that I'm actually taking all the stuff out of my head and putting it somewhere else um, so process wise, um, I do have kind of a pattern. I, so I will take whatever, um, scripture it is that, that is for the coming Sunday and just sort of let it, let it rattle around in my head for the first two or three days of, of the week and not do anything with it. Just be aware of that as I'm going through the rest of, of the week. Um, and then I will sit down with um, the research of it and start with other people's ideas of what's happening. So going through uh, liturgical resources, going through commentaries, going through all that sort of stuff. That's that's kind of the next step is to, to here's, here's what the text is, here's what other people think the text is. And once I have those two pieces together, then I will start to see if there's an outline that I've been putting together sort of uh, without <laughs> without knowing um in the sense that that something has connected to it in my life always whether it's oh that makes me think of this story i used to know or a song that i that i had at one point or um you know this like with uh yesterday's sermon that oh pride just happened and i had um, such a reaction to that in a way that made sense to me through um, through Joseph's story. <clears throat> so sort of looking for the hook, the the basics of the the sermon. Um, because I tend to write in what I think of as a spiral, which is that I start with a point and then I keep circling back around that concept, but it gets narrower and narrower. So maybe more of a funnel, but um, <laughs> that... <laughs> look I was bad at geometry I did not do well in that so. <laughs> um but in any case like I don't I don't start with a thing and then do like the three-point sermon whatever I almost never write like that <clears throat> but I will start with here is this image here is this hook then let's talk about the text here's the hook through the text let's talk about some commentary here's the hook through the commentary but you know like to continually get to here is the point that I wanted you to see. I've led you there through this, this illustration. Um, and so then I do tend to sit down and just marathon write the thing in it usually it usually does take me about an hour and a half, two hours or so to get 
all of the stuff that's in my head into a, a draft. Yeah, that's interesting because I have a very similar process to that. Um, one, this, yeah, except that I don't think in writing. So I'm mm. about this, and I'm curious to ask Barry about this too, because I know you often think in images and concepts, um, but you think in writing. So what does that look like? Do you what do you see in your brain thinking in writing? So I actually, um, I, I have a question that uh, one of my cousins is a social worker, and she was telling me at one point um, about, or talking to me about how kids process information differently and social workers need to, cause she worked with children in, in Chicago um, and how social workers need to be able to on the fly, understand how to impart information to a kid such that they'll get it, um, which requires a lot of, of flexibility in different thought processing styles. And so her illustration to me, which I like as a sort of quick and dirty understanding, um, is to say to somebody, I'm going to say the word ball to you. What do you think of? And <clears throat> so somebody who works more in images would probably think of like the image of an actual ball. Um, I, I had this conversation with a mechanic friend of mine at one point who he started thinking of a ball joint um, in a, in a machine and, uh, you know, like various people, this is, I'm taking this very common word and, and thinking about it in this way. So for me, when I say I think in image and in, in words, I really literally think in words that when I when you say just the word ball without any context, I think of those old um, um, handwriting booklets with like the the blue lines and the dotted line and the word ball written on it. Uh, so when I'm in a conversation, I'm seeing it like paragraphs in text. It's very difficult for me to switch into an image that isn't provided. Like I can think of the lamp that's sitting in front of me because I'm looking at it. But if you ask me to think of a lamp, it's going to take me a minute to think of a picture of a lamp rather than the word and then a description of what a lamp does. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in talking about this um, for those of us who are trained in how to make the text come alive in particular ways because I think it helps the congregation, no one understand that hopefully we're modeling what can be done there's nothing magical or special about us and our MDiv, you know, degrees. <laughs> well, obviously it's our jobs. Man, I got a wizard hat. <laughs> More consistent. <laughs> I think it's interesting to think through how do you arrive to making these connections? Um, so what is it? Do you have a image, Barry, or do you have a concept? Or because I think in talking, Jay thinks in words. Um, I I do images and concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm fine. I find that images tend to be good hooks for me and, um, and because people kind of like story, story tends to be wrapped around an image of, of, of some kind. But yeah, I, I start there. And so the words build. The words build. You see or understand somehow an image in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then shape words to describe what I'm seeing. I do a lot of mental work thinking through like what would what do I think is interesting about this text or what would I want to bring forward or like what should be communicated to the congregation but I think about it and then I brain dump write it it's got to marinate for a while and I read the scripture every day or whatever and, and then I can yeah. write really quickly but there are hours of prep reading you know that kind of stuff that went into it so it's hard to quantify like you mentioned mm -hmm. fascinating hopefully given that we're three vastly different people. Um, 
folks might resonate with one of those three styles, knowing that there are a myriad more, but that might help other people make connections to this mm-hmm. book that you preached from. <laughs> one of 66. That we included. Yeah. <laughs> that we thought were good enough to make the cut. Um, <laughs> so, so we invited you into a series that you had nothing to do with planning. Um, so that's a weird, that's a weird kind of stepping in. Um, was the process any different? I mean, no, it is a weird thing. It's, it's something I'm much more used to now as an associate because I don't do the sermon planning here, um, here. I I don't do the sermon planning at Ann Arbor first. That's the senior pastor's job. Um, I I say that knowing that I actually am in charge of the fall series, but that's the first time in the year that I've been there that I've been in charge of of putting together a sermon series. Um, So I have gotten accustomed to uh, jumping into a a sermon series that I'm not particularly part of, that I didn't have a hand in creating. It's not my favorite by any stretch, but um, I have learned to be sort of quick on the draw as it were to find what the series is attempting to do and um always to listen to the one immediately before you uh to to pull on the themes the concepts uh also because most of the people who are coming to the service that's the one that they're going to have in their head if they have one at all because you know people don't tend to keep sermons in their heads for multiple weeks <laughs> people other than me i uh i keep them for a long time but that's that's sort of an occupational hazard um but yeah so so it wasn't as weird as it could have been um to just hop into this series the the weirder piece of it i suppose for me is that it was preaching to a congregation i don't know um which may sound jarring to those who who are aware this is my home church and and I've been connected to it for many years at this point but like I'm not in the day-to-day understanding of what the congregation is doing what it needs where it's going what your vision for it is um any of that sort of thing so because of the way that I write sermons I never recycle them um because I think preaching is always to the moment and to what's what's happening at the time um, so it, it, it's much weirder to preach to a congregation where I don't know what they, they need, um, than it is to preach within a sermon series that I haven't been paying attention to. Well, I think too, to our credit, we didn't have anything particular we wanted you to communicate. Yeah. Here's a text. That, that was also helpful. <laughs> That's <laughs> easier than like, Hey, here's a text and here's a sneaky sub message we'd like you to work in. Right, um, right. Here's, here's a text, and, a, and the whole point of this is what can you learn from the text, which is, um, I don't know, I've been a guest preaching situations, but like, we'd like you to preach about how our congregation's not hospitable. And here's a scripture. So I was like, oh, right. yeah, alleviate that part. Right. Yeah, and it, and it also, I mean, uh, it also becomes a moment of being able to retain my own integrity as a preacher, which, you know, thanks. Um, but also like some of that is because you weren't asking me to, to take 
for for this particular moment to take Joseph in a certain direction, then I could preach the sermon that I felt I was finding in in the text this week. Um, I I like you. I've had some some guest preaching experiences where people are like, "Well, so I need you to make basically to make the scripture say this," and I'm like, "That that feels weird. Let's not do that." What was your main takeaway for us? We ask this each week, so sorry, you're getting into <laughs> What was your thesis statement? Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> so I think it would be that God is at work within all of the things that we are doing despite you know which which is which is a great number of prepositions but um that especially with joseph he's such a punk and um i think the the takeaway itself is just despite him with with him being a punk despite all of his brothers with them being punk all all of these characters who are kind of terrible people in really interesting ways God is still at work in fulfilling the promise of I will be here, I will care for you. And I think that that's such a simple thing, but such a reassurance that like we can't stop the compassion of God. Uh, it, that's um, that's beautiful. And that was well illustrated yesterday. Um, I think where my brain went to a, a subcategory of that that you mentioned in terms of my takeaway um, because I've, uh, you know, what, what preachers say meet your personal experience, you know, like that's the, that's the deep hope. <laughs> sure. Um, so I've thought long and hard about my complicity in an institution that is so actively harmful, uh, yeah. be, it, be it, you know, little C Catholic church or, the Methodist church particularly, what does that mean and look like? Um, can I be party to this? Can I be a part of it? And I'm like, well, what institutions can one be a part of that? <laughs> what what feeling right. or crumbling in late stage capitalism America? Um, but the reminder that, you know, God is so present throughout all of that in your official capacity and not God will use you. God has called you where you are you know and something doesn't have to be perfect for it to to be beautiful and meaningful and touch people's lives and right. yeah there's nothing that precludes us from continually doing the work of resurrection within the institutions we might have whether they need to be you know if however they need to be built back up whether it is from a you know, absolute flat place or <laughs> we can work with what we have sure. What about you, Barry? What was your takeaway? Well, I was certainly, um, your, your theme statement resonates. I was struck yesterday in my listening um, about the reveal and how much, how much clergy reveal about their own selves in the, yeah. in the process of preaching. Mm. Um, because as in one, at one level, you're talking about all that Joseph and his brothers reveal about themselves um, and their father, for that matter, and and in some way um, about about God, who is largely absent. Um, but at the same time, even in the preaching, you're revealing 
about yourself, who you are in relationship to community and to God. Where do you, where do you, are you conscious about, about um, what you will reveal or what you hope to reveal? Extremely. Um, so, so this is, this is funny just in terms of a conversation I had last night. So I'm, so I'm here, uh, at Lake Huron Retreat Center to teach licensed local pastor school. And last night, some of the other faculty and I were, were just chatting for the evening. Um, and the, the teacher for preaching and worship and I were having a conversation about how preaching is inherently a character to be played. Um, that when you step into the pulpit, that isn't the same person that any of us are sort of on the street or when we're at dinner with our families or anything like that. And some of that is the necessity of, of the difference of, of professional self, right? But some of it is also that the character of preacher is a whole thing and is a symbol unto itself. Um, I am painfully aware when I step into a pulpit, literally or metaphorically, um, that there are a lot of pieces of my identity that I bring with me that may or may not be welcome at that particular point. And so who I choose to visibly be, who I don't choose to visibly be, and who I I choose to allude to or to recognize that that is part of me in other spaces, all of those are part of shaping the character of the preacher that I am that particular week. Um, which is not to say that that's not my authentic self. It's just a facet. Um, so yes, I, I am, when I write sermons, I'm very careful about um, who, who I am allowing people to see, uh, partially as protective nature partially as what is it that's going to get get the get the point across i suppose without being unnecessarily informative um part of it is also that when i write sermons i am very much mindful of the the warning that um nadia boltzweber i think it is um talks about which is that you should never preach from your wounds only from your scars um in in an effort to remind folks that that getting getting yourself into a space where the congregation is caretaking you because of whatever it is that you've said in your sermon just kills the point of the sermon and also gets in the way of the word and and does weird things to what the the preacher is doing authoritatively <clears throat> um so so i am also deliberately aware of this is a thing that i don't want to talk about because i I don't want to have all of the follow-up conversations in the receiving line afterward, or um, I know that it's going to become the thing that people focus on instead of the the text of the scripture or whatever. Um, so I do, I when I do have various reveals or when I do tell stories about myself or something, I, I am very careful about this is doing this rhetorical thing um, within the the storytelling of the sermon. Yeah, Barry and I have had that same conversation a lot. And I um I understand the language of character and I think that makes a lot of sense. I I feel like it's more role. Mm -hmm. You know, like for me that feels like I'm able to claim my authentic, you know, who I am in the pulpit is who I am. 
I'm going to talk differently. I'm certainly going to swear less, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, sometimes. (laughs) Um, But it, it is uh, figuring out how to bring the kind of energy needed to both connect with people, but protect yourself. That's hard. And I, I think sometimes um, like you mentioned the appearance stuff and any, any one of us who is not the normative of what people anticipate a preacher, like has to be kind of thoughtful. And I remember in seminary being told like, you, you should not wear red lipstick. You should not wear dangly ear, like all this kind of garbage, like, okay, whatever. And so, you know, as you've talked about making your own aesthetic choices, sometimes that will get commented on more than anything you have to say. Um, sure. anything the spirit might lead you to do in preaching. So it's an interesting dynamic or dichotomy of thinking through how do I how do I present myself such that my ideas can be presented mm-hmm. and I hope that they are knowing also when you preach a sermon like whew, you know it's out there and people are going to hear what they'd like to and going to interact with it in all sorts of ways that perhaps you didn't intend and sometimes that is beautiful in the spirit you know, like you can see where that's working. And sometimes you're like, I didn't say anything like that. <laughs> the manuscript, do I need to go back and listen to myself again? Sure. It's a fascinating process of this kind of every Sunday morning that I think uh, very few of us in the scope of humans kind of have that, that experience in that particular mm-hmm. way. Well, and I've I've had some really interesting conversations with folks about how um, so one of the like top five fears in in general categories of people having fears of things, phobias, is public public speaking, right? Very few people like it. Um, I am one of those who is not wildly fond of public speaking. I have a job that is public speaking literally every week. <laughs> and there, there are people who have been very curious about, well, what do you mean you're an introvert? What do you mean you're, you don't particularly like public speaking? What do you mean? Blah, 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 blah. Um, these are all things that are part of this job. It's like, yes. One part is one thing is, you know, to remind people I do quite a bit more than preaching um what also every Sunday (laughs) (laughs) I know right like oh my gosh I run things um but also like for me and this is this is the language of character uh that I tend to use that I am putting on Pastor Jenaba on a Sunday who is outgoing who is connective who is um you know, a, a dynamic public speaker who is all these sorts of things. And that's not to say that that's false. Like that, that is very much me, but in a limited capacity, I am not like that 24 seven. I am not even like that seven. I so like that, that takes a lot of energy to be that particular version of myself. Um, and so I think when I preach, it's really interesting to talk to folks who, like people will come up to me after the service or something and and say, oh, you know, I can tell that that you love your job so much, or I can tell that that you're a real people person, or I can tell all these sorts of things, which is to me hilarious because that's not broadly true, but it is, um, it is this sense of of yeah. like Joseph. <laughs> what? Um, but it is this sense of like Joseph, like he's 
he's a Hebrew boy from the sticks who is suddenly in charge of everything and and throws that power around like a millstone. Um, and I appreciate that aspect of of this particular story of the, of the narrative of Joseph that I too understand what it's like to walk into a room and be the big personality, be the one in charge, not because that's where I naturally go, but because that's a that's a character that I've learned. That's an aspect that I've learned um, and is useful in stuff like preaching where I need to be a sort of larger than life person. Yeah, you can learn how to do it and do it well, but it's, mm. not, it's not your preferential thing. Right. Yeah, who I am on a Sunday morning talking to 75 different people over the course of whatever, that is not who I want to be on Tuesday, right? But it is somebody that I'm comfortable being for that situation. And then I go home and take a nap. <laughs> so if I could uh, non sequitur, um so one of the things that we ask uh, each other all the time is so when you were preparing uh for the sermon is there a rabbit hole that you were that you found yourself going down or wanting to go down um you know i'd have to think about it i um There often it that's not what I wanted. Uh, there often is, in the sense of like a linguistic thing, I'll get trapped in a lot of, oh, what does this say in the original text? What is that word about? What is blah 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 blah, um, which is never, like ne almost never ends up in the actual sermon, um, but I think there might have been one in this. I what you can't see is that I'm looking up my the the document that I have of sermon because when I write um sermons I do it just in general Microsoft Word because I'm 604. Um Noah and I use it huh? word as well. Thank you. There we go. Um so like I'll write the whole sermon out but then like the the last however many pages are all of my notes that I didn't use. Um or did and then like gutted for different reasons. Um, so yes, so I think one of the the pieces, the the rabbit holes as you as you call them. Um, one of the the ways that I that I did sort of get wander off into that get, had a little bit of play in the final sermon was the the ways in which people use this this text to talk about um the redemptive nature of suffering versus the causative nature of suffering that like god informed the brothers to throw joseph away so that god could blah blah blah, blah later on in life versus the brothers threw joseph away and god reformed that over time and you know that that aspect of the collision of God's sovereign power, which is something that I believe in, um, versus God's ability to to create horrific situations, which I do not believe in. Um, <clears throat> and the tension between what it looks like for God to to be 
all powerful if you want to use that language um but also not to be the one who is who is making people miserable all the time a sort of sort of calvinist view and so i chased that theology for for a little while before i realized what i was doing and i was like that's no that's 16 more sermons you can't do that <laughs> yeah i think uh, uh three minutes in a sermon on god's restraining power might be difficult <laughs> right right well it's interesting because we talked a little bit about that in staff meeting and I was really drawn, I think, more so to the the Joseph side of that, about how sometimes we have to talk about God that way as our own protective, as a way to deal with our own trauma, right? right. Sometimes in order to care for ourselves, we have to talk about God, or we choose to talk about God in a particular way that makes it um, seem more okay than it was to even look. I think that's really fascinating. I went down that rabbit hole. I also love the men hugging and weeping. I need more men hugging and weeping in my life. I need men to start hugging and weeping. It was in Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> but still, more, yeah, more men hugging and weeping and then being able to come to spaces of reconciliation. That was a rabbit hole I went down that you touched on briefly, but again, uh, you only had one sermon to preach. <laughs> I did, and and then I preached four. No, um, I did... I, I agree in the way that that is portrayed as an, you know, over and over again in um, what we, what we call the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> there are these moments of very emotive reactions from the various men in the, in the stories, uh, partly because the men are the only ones in the stories. So I guess somebody has got to carry the emotion. Um, it's it's which, a device. <laughs> Right, right. Um, but partly also because there was that sense, like the, the concept of masculinity as an unemotional thing is an extraordinarily modern notion. Um, but uh, ask first, please don't just hop on to people and hug them. Um, but yeah, I, I do appreciate, <laughs> I, <laughs> I just, you know, boundaries, what, personal what, what boundaries. Man or a woman? Yeah, no, you matter, no matter your identity, hugging, <laughs> um, but consensual hugging and weeping, I think you know we could use more of. It's, it's great, and and one of the things that I appreciate about this particular text is that there's, it is it is very much a story. It is not a character study. Yeah. So we don't get why Joseph is crying. Like when he tells us. Is that really why he's crying? I don't know. Um, you know, and we don't get most of what the brothers' reactions are beyond they were scared and then they were not. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, especially as a younger sibling, I am very aware of how to use emotions as manipulative tools. And that concept of like crying on someone and being the loud, it's so loud you can be heard outside the room, you know, like all those sorts of things uh, while saying, oh, don't feel badly that you did this horrible thing. You know, like the whole scene is very manipulative if you read it like that. And it's very beautiful if you read it like that. And And like the text doesn't tell us how much genuine, um, emotion is happening here it's just sort of for us to discover on our own and I kind of love that because 
it is perfectly possible that it is both Joseph being the most ridiculous, overdramatic younger sibling who finally gets to make his brothers feel as terrible as he has felt. And it's this beautiful moment of Joseph having been on his own in a foreign land and probably lonely for years and years and years and seeing his family after a while. And like those, the fact that those can simultaneously be true is, is just one of the, the reasons why, especially the stories in Genesis are so good because, you know, that's, that's humanity is we are always a little terrible and completely beautiful. We've been talking about that every week, how great these stories are for yeah. that reason. They're yeah. so human. Yeah, and the text does not force a decision on us. Like between right. those two, they're not really options. They're, they're two truths. Yeah, there's no right. vice from Paul with what's bad, what's wrong, <laughs> what not to do. There's just humans doing all sorts of stuff. Sure. Shenanigans. Scriptural shenanigans. <laughs> Scriptural shenanigans. It is. And and like, that's that's one of the things you know, the, the, the Biblios, the library being as many different types of writing as it is, of course, they're, they're going to have variations of, of how much story you can sort of hook your, your needles into. But, um, I do love that over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> like crochet, hook, crochet anyway. or a meat hook. What, what, what are we hooking needles. into? Knitting, needles. Knitting, needles. knitting like crochet needles or like a meat anyway. Anyway, you can hook your fingers into that you can whatever that you can cozy up alongside um so anyway the but yeah like over and over again even paul and i get that this is one of those moments that you and i have had this conversation a thousand times about how i love paul and you think he needs to be sort of bopped on the head but um you must be huh him or me you oh don't i want to bop on the head (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's fair okay. back to your love um, back to my love of Paul but, but, but yeah like even when he is doing all these very didactic notions of you know don't throw your granny in a bag and and do um go grocery shopping on Tuesdays and all these sorts of things that's sorry that's a that's an Eddie Izzard reference um <laughs> but uh you know even as he's doing that it is so very couched in the recognition of people trying to live in community together and saying, here is this rule about how you should, how you need to stop hurting each other. Here is this rule about um, how it would be helpful if you paid attention to the broken among you. Here's this rule of, for the love of God, I'm, I'm so tired of Betty calling me and telling me about the, how the fake flowers are wrong this week or, you know, like all these, these very pastoral concerns um, about, how difficult it is to be human together um and and i just love that every single piece of scripture even the bits that are buried in the the uh pentateuch that nobody ever reads because people think it's boring to just read thou shalt not forever or it requires 16 pomegranates to have this particular robe um like all of this stuff is about how do we human in such a way that we are not hating ourselves and each other with the new day, you know? And and like, how do we do community that lasts in, because that has to have boundaries, that has to have ideas, that has to have 
moments of recognizing I'm being a twerp and a blessing right now. And that's just how this is going to be today. And, um, and I, and I think that's such, such a wonderfully, uh, um, earthy piece of what is to many people, a very supernatural book. Almost like we're called to love God and neighbor. Weird, right? Well, on that note. And self. And that, self. That is a different series. <laughs> well, Jay, thank you mm. for spending some time with us via Zoom all the way from Pure Huron. Port, port, what is it? Port Huron. Port, port Huron. Port Huron. Um, it's fine. I've had a little cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's sugar, man. It'll get right to you. Oh, yeah. thank Lake you. Huron says hello. Yes. Happy teaching. Yeah, and everybody. We're excited. Uh, yeah, we'll welcome you on the podcast again in the in coming weeks, which will be wonderful. Thank you so much for being in there yesterday. It was delightful. And uh, yeah, people loved seeing you. Aww. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, it is... <laughs> I do like guest preaching in other pulpits, partly because um, I'm very passionate about the the connectional nature of Methodism, but partly also because like it's just cool to see how other congregations do a thing. And then I can go back to my congregation and say, we could try this, or we have thought about this, or hey, we do this a lot better, you know, like whatever. Um, <laughs> and I just, I really appreciate being reminded that the body of Christ is, is extremely extraordinarily vast and all of us are doing it differently and yet the it of of worship and and community and everything like that is keeps going somehow it does somehow all right well uh thank you again jenna and folks we will see you next week for the uh it'll be my last week preaching for a while i'm going on renewal leave and um we'll be wrapping up with the sermon on the birth of moses don't want to miss it you know it's you hardly know this story <laughs> all right